Well, good morning, friends. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 for the rest of our time here this morning. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. And we've provided copies that should be in arm's reach. Should be a little black hardback either on a pew next to you or in a little rack in front of you. Uh, You'll find the section of the scriptures that we're going to be considering this morning on page 880 of that black pew Bible. And again, we'd love it if you would take that with you if you don't own a copy. It'll be a real help to you to have it open in front of you for what we're going to do now, but, but we'd also love for you to take it with you. Friends, I want to invite you to stand one more time uh, as we read from Acts 27. I'm going to start in verse, cha- uh, verse 1 of that chapter and then read through verse 10 of the following chapter, Acts 28. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put, in to, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with great difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 
since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the rope to the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but... When they'd waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. 
who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is God's word. You can be seated. I don't know if there's ever been a more beloved genre in literature than the epic journey tale. Far as I can tell, everybody loves a good journey story. There's Dante's, in, Dante's Inferno or the, the Divine Comedy. There's Pilgrim's Progress. There's Moby Dick. There's Journey to the Center of the Earth. There's Jack Kerouac's On the Road and Elizabeth Gilbert's New Agey Eat, Pray, Love. And even Finding Nemo, Disney gets in on this action. But probably the most infamous, the most influential story along these lines would have to be Homer's Odyssey. This is the one that's been in print for more than 2,500 years. A story beloved by students and scholars alike. And I even found an awesome kids version of this story that my boys love with, you know, most of the graphic violence carefully toned down, if not excised altogether. It's the story of a man named Odysseus who went off to fight against the Trojans, got the job done, starts hankering for hearth and home, and sets sail to return to his wife and son. He set sail in the right direction, loaded down with plenty of men to protect him along the way and lots of provisions to eat till they got home. But quickly, well, quickly Odysseus' journey turns into like the the worst road trip of all time. (laughs) He's held up by one thing after another. The siren songs get him distracted. He's almost killed by one catastrophe after another, almost eaten by the Scylla, almost consumed and drowned by the Charybdis. Some of the things that happen to him are random. Some of them are because he's just foolish. But most of the things that happened to this guy on his trip home happened to him because he got on the bad side of the wrong god, the sea god Poseidon. When he pokes out the eye of Poseidon's son, the Cyclops, and then makes fun of him for it. If you mean to sail home by sea and you got a lot of water between you and your, and your, and your house, that is not the god you want to have upset with you. <laughs> I'm far from the first person to notice echoes of that famous epic tale in the story I just read to you from from Acts 27. Uh, There's no question that what we just read is one of the most exquisite and action-packed stories anywhere in the Bible. It is absolutely an epic tale. And like many of the journey stories I already mentioned at the top, this one zeroes in on one central character, in this case, Paul, and shows you what's going on with him at every turn. As one thing leads to another, it's, it's him that we're watching. He's the one who's showing us what we're meant to notice. And where many of the stories I mentioned before are stories where, where, where one or another of the characters find themselves in one way or another through what happens to them, the twists and turns of their, of their story. This story shows us a man who knows exactly who he is. A man who is at the peak of his spiritual maturity. A man who is exactly what God's grace has made him to be by this point in his life. In fact, in one of his letters, Paul calls on his friends to to imitate him as he imitates Jesus. To follow him as he follows Christ. And I think Luke tells us the story that we've just read together for exactly this purpose. To show us up close and personal 
this man following Jesus so that we can follow Paul as he follows Christ. What are we meant to notice about Paul in this epic journey tale? I want to show you four things that I think are especially important to Luke that I think will be especially encouraging and helpful for all of us. And here's number one. The first thing to notice about Paul in this journey is Paul's mercy. This comes out especially in the first 26 verses of the chapter. Uh, Let me set it up for you. Uh, uh, We've last looked at Paul before the Roman governor Festus. Paul doesn't think he's getting justice. He appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, and Governor Festus is all too happy to punt this case to somebody else. He says, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. That's where we pick up in the beginning of chapter 27. They're looking for a ship that can get him to Caesar, something headed generally in the direction of Italy. I say generally in the direction of Italy because there's no direct flights, shall we say, from Caesarea all the way to Rome. They're just going to have to sort of inch their way along best way they can. They hop on a ship that's headed up the coast of Asia Minor, Pamphylia and Cilicia, many of the places Paul's already visited in some of his missionary journeys. They board the ship, all's going great, until they stop at a, at, at a port called Myra. Myra was a, a well-known port along the trade of grain grown in Egypt and eaten in Rome. So there was lots of ships headed up this way, stopping at Myra with loads full of wheat and other grains to then take on to, to the marketplaces in Rome. The centurion, Julius, who's in charge of Paul, finds them a ship coming from Alexandria, that's in Egypt, and headed to Rome with a load of wheat. So far, so good. They board the ship. But from this point forward, this journey turns sour. Verse 7 says that they sailed slowly once they boarded this ship headed for Rome. With great difficulty for days, verse 7 tells us, blocked by the winds. So they sail past a, a small island to try to get themselves some relief and when they reach Crete, they, they, they find a, a harbor known as Fair Havens where they can stop and evaluate, what are we going to do now? Because here's what happened. While they were fighting those winds along the way, they were losing precious time. Luke tells us that it was already in this in-between time where sailing the Mediterranean is very dangerous. He tells us that the fast had already passed, meaning the Jewish Day of Atonement, which would have fallen in late September, mid-October, somewhere in that range. No one would sail the Mediterranean after mid-November. From that point on for the winter, you don't do it. So now they're in this crucial, dangerous, in-between time. They could make a run for it and hope for the best, or they could stay put and wait for the winter. The officers on board the ship call a council to decide what to do. And and for some reason, they invite Paul to join this council. We don't know exactly how he got himself onto this team. Verse 9 and 10 show us him in action, however. Maybe it's because because he probably had more experience sailing than anybody else on the ship. There's a, a real possibility that he was the most experienced seaman out there because of all the travel he had done. But for one reason or another, they, they want his perspective and Paul is happy to give it. He tells them, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. That's putting it plain. The centurion's been warned. But Julius, 
Julius decides to go with the experts. He decides to listen to the pilot and the owner of the ship, we're told, verse 11. I don't know that I can blame him. I mean, the guy's the pilot, and it's, it's this, this fellow's ship. And Paul, who is Paul? He's, a, he's in chains. But for whatever reason, it, well, it was a fateful decision. The majority of the council, Luke says, decide to put out to sea. They're going to race against time to reach another harbor on Crete that they think they can more easily spend winter in. And at first, everything seems fine. Well, that is until it happened. Out of nowhere, as they're sailing along close to the shore of Crete, a wind came up. An infamous enemy of all Mediterranean sailors. An enemy so infamous it had its own name. Translated here as Northeaster, they would have called it the Eurokilo. This was a wind that no one could face. This ship had no chance against the Northeaster. No way to stick close to the coast. No way to stay on course. Luke tells us they're just driven along. Verses 15 to 20 show us step by step this devolving situation as things play out pretty much exactly as Paul warned that they would. Step by step detail by detail. Look with me at these verses. They, they, they find a moment of shelter behind another small island. They use this as an opportunity to haul up the ship's boat or the little dinghy that would have been trailing along with them. They, they don't want it to get torn away or beaten back into the ship. They're doing everything they know to do. Once they've got the ship's boat on board, then we're told they run these ropes up underneath the ship to reinforce it against the power of these waves. Then to slow themselves down, since they can't really steer, they may as well slow down. They, they, they chunk off board some of the tackle, some of the gear that would then create more drag and hopefully give them more time to control the ship. Finally, they just start unloading the cargo. I mean, the whole purpose of this ship's uh, journey is to, to make some money off this cargo. This is how desperate they were. They're now ready to just take a total loss. They're heaving off all the stuff that they had brought from Egypt to sell in Rome. In other words, guys, they have leveraged every bit of control that they could possibly get over this situation. They've done all they know to do. And nothing has done any good. Things only get worse. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. That's dark. Literally. But it's at this moment, when all their hope was gone, when there was nothing more that they could do to help themselves, when they are now at the mercy of a sea beyond all control, it is at this hopeless and dark moment that Paul opens his mouth again to say, I told you so. <laughs> Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And basically exactly what he said would happen has happened. And they didn't, they didn't take him seriously. Now they've gotten exactly what they asked for when they decided to make a run for it. But, but friends, a, a, a joke. This is not actually what Paul opens his mouth to say. He's just getting started. He opens his mouth not to rub salt down into the wounds so that they know that it was, it was their own fault that they got in this situation. 
No, he opens his mouth to give them hope, to speak a word from the Lord of of redemption and salvation. Look at verses 22 to 26 with me. Let's go back to these verses together. Yet now I urge you to take heart, Paul says, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, Paul says, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Every part of Paul's prediction has come true so far. Injury, check. Loss, check. Cargo unloaded, check. And soon enough, the ship will go down as well but they will not lose their lives as he had predicted. Did you notice why? The angel says to Paul, to Paul, God has granted you, everyone who sails with you. These sailors will live because Paul wants them to. He didn't want to be right. He was praying that they would live, and God has heard his prayer. That's what he means when he says, God has granted them to you. Paul asked for them. Please, Lord, save them. They're in this mess because they were too proud to listen to Paul's wisdom in the first place. They went their own way instead. And their foolishness has now put everybody's lives in danger, including Paul's life. But Paul doesn't want vengeance. He doesn't want to see them get what they asked for. He doesn't want to be right. What he longs for is to see them spared. And he's thrilled right here, right now, to tell them that's exactly what God means to do. Friends, remember this. Remember that that Paul speaks as a man who knew what it was to receive mercy. This was a man who once spent his days working to destroy the very thing Jesus died to purchase for himself. And when Jesus met this man, Paul, on the road to Damascus, it wasn't to crush him for his sin, but to offer him forgiveness instead and to invite him into his own life's work to build up the church that Jesus lived and died for. Paul knew what it was to be saved from the consequences of what you've done. Friends, Paul is merciful right here to those he sails with because the God he worships and belongs to is a God who is rich in mercy. When we reach the point of despair, when there's neither moon nor stars that are visible to us shining through, when, we just, when we've given up pretending that we're okay on our own or that we've done nothing wrong, When you look at yourself and you see the best you've been able to come up with and where your best has gotten you and you say to yourself, all my hope of being saved is at last abandoned. When you get there, God doesn't look back at you and say, well, I told you so. You made this bed, now sleep in it. Hope you enjoy the mess that you've made. (laughs) 
when you come to him with the honesty that is this sort of desperation, what you get from God is an offer. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Acts 2, 21. Or here's how Paul himself puts it, sums it up in his letter to Titus. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was what we chose for ourselves. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. This God of mercy invites you, friend, right now, invites you to come to Him with the consequences of your sin against Him. And has promised that when you do, he won't throw those consequences back in your face. He will lay those consequences as a burden on his own son, Jesus, instead. And when you come to him, when you come to know his mercy, well, you will more and more long to show that same mercy to other people just like Paul does right here. Friends, don't you want to be part of a community where nobody says, I told you so? where everyone instead just says, let me help you with that. Don't you want to be a community where we don't want to see people face the consequences for their sin? Even for their sins against us. But where, instead of that, we're drawn closer when we see them struggling. Where we want, to, we want to make those consequences lighter, those burdens lighter. Even when we've been sinned against, where we want to pay the cost of restoration and peace. Don't you want to be a community like that? I, I wonder, do you have somebody in your life who's, who's feeling the consequences of something they've done, of, of a mess that they've made? If you can think of someone like that in your life right now, maybe, maybe what they've done is even something they've done to you. I wonder, are you moving toward them to help them? Or do you find yourself kind of pulling back to see what happens? I wonder in your heart, friends, are, are you hoping they'll get what they asked for? Or are you like Paul praying that God would spare them? One reason Luke tells us this story is to show us Paul's mercy in action. When we see Paul's mercy, we see a reflection of God's mercy to us. And when we see God's mercy to us, well, then it becomes a whole lot easier to show mercy to one another. The first thing to notice in this story is the mercy of Paul, Paul's mercy. The next thing I want you to notice is Paul's kindness. This comes out in chapter 27, verses 27 to 44 through the end of the chapter. Uh, unfortunately, this is a story that's got to get a lot worse before it gets any better. Paul had warned them about that. I mean, he said, you're not going to lose your lives, but you are going to lose the ship. And from this point forward, once again, everything Paul said would happen comes true. But what's most striking to me about this next section is that these folks are listening to Paul now. They know better than to, to turn a, a deaf ear to what he's got to say. He's in chains, but he's clearly in the lead from here, from here on out in this story. At every point, 
At every point, he's working not for his own interests. He's not angling for his own freedom, but he's serving the same men who now held him prisoner. Look with me at a couple of examples, would you? Look with me at, at, at Acts 27, verses 27 to 32 first. After the ship had been thrown around and carried along for mile after mile, 14 days and nights, we're told in verse 27, the sailors realize it's getting more shallow. That means we must be near land. Some of them see this as their moment and try to look like they're helping out, but really make a move for the ship's boat. They want to lower it down. They want to escape. Paul sees it all playing out, but he's not angry. In fact, just the opposite. Paul warns the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Here Paul is in chains, watching other men try to save themselves at his expense, and he's trying to make sure their lives are saved. He wants them to live. And so the centurion has the boat cut away, just as Paul said. Then verses 33 to 38, nobody's eaten in a long time. They've been stressed out to the max by, you know, like clinging to their very lives by a thread. So Paul tells them, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, he says, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Then he gives thanks to the Lord. He passes around the food and everybody, all 276 of them, eat their fill. Paul's taking care of them. And just in time, too, because the next day, just as Paul predicted, the ship is lost to the sea. They come up on a small island. They don't know where they are, but they see a bay and a sandy beach and make for it. They cut away everything. They, they, they put all their chips on that sandy beach. They set the sail and they go. What they don't see is a reef just beneath the surface of the waters. The ship crashes into the reef then gets stuck in the muddy floor uh, of the bay and they can't get anywhere. They're at the mercy of waves pounding them one after another until Luke tells us the ship is breaking apart. The instinct of the, of the sailors is to kill the prisoners. If those prisoners get away, they would be killed for that. They move to kill the prisoners and the centurion stops them, calls them to jump overboard and swim if they can or grab a hold of a piece of wood if they can't. And one way or another, Luke tells us in verse 44, all were brought safely to land. I don't know about you, but I find Paul's behavior throughout all this to be absolutely remarkable. And think about it. Paul's in the same predicament that they're all in. He's as storm-tossed as they are. He's hungry and vulnerable just like they are. Only thing that's different is that he didn't ask for this boat ride. Not really. He's in chains for crimes he didn't even commit. And his life is so cheap to them that is at the first opportunity, they're ready to kill him just to make sure he doesn't escape. And right there, in the middle of all of it, Paul is not only calm and cool and collected, Paul is relentlessly kind. And he's trying to save their lives, the lives of the very same men who were all too ready to destroy his. He's focused on their needs, not his. Does that sound familiar to you? Paul reminds me so much of Jesus right here. Of Jesus on the way to his own death. You know, on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he gets down on his knees. 
and washes the dirty, nasty, filthy feet of his disciples. One of the men that he washed was about to betray him. And he knew it. And he served him anyway. All of that night, under the weight of knowing what was coming, under a stress so severe that soon enough would have him sweating drops of blood, Jesus speaks words of comfort to his disciples. He's preparing them for their stress that they would soon go through watching him die. And then when he's on the cross in agony, he's making sure his mother will be taken care of. And he's offering paradise to a thief dying next to him when one thief is mocking him. And perhaps most striking of all, Jesus is, is hanging there innocently in agony and pleading for the forgiveness of the people who had just hung him up there in the first place. Who is this man? This Christ in the, in the middle of a storm that he didn't deserve to be in was relentlessly calm and steady and focused on the needs of others all the way to the end. He was kind. I don't know about you guys, but in the middle of my stress, my default mode is not to look around for who else might be stressed and how I might can help them out. Our natural tendency is going to be in the opposite direction always, isn't it? When we're under stress like this, we tend to get a kind of tunnel vision where step one is got to get my needs covered before I can look around and see what's going on with anybody else. And maybe you are especially tempted to that kind of, that kind of tunnel vision when, when somebody else is the reason that you're stressed in the first place. You know, or, 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 or when, you, when you feel like your situation wouldn't be so difficult if other people were paying more attention to what you're going through. I mean, when things are tough, when, when things honestly are what they've been for a lot of us for the last couple of years in one way or another, it's really difficult to think about what other people are going through too. And kindness can seem like a posture for calmer weather, you know, for leisure cruises, not for storm-tossed grain ships and all. Thank God that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. That kindness is a gift given, worked out by His power in the lives of His children in season and out of season. A fruit that, that comes when we remember ultimately who looks after our needs. That's where the fruit comes from. Where did Paul's kindness come from? Remember verse 25? I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. He knows who's got this story. He knows who's in control of this stormy situation. Or even just look at his posture when he's calling everybody over to dinner. He tells them, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Just before he gives thanks to God for what he's already provided. I can't help but hear an echo here of Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Sparrows aren't worth nothing. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered, Jesus says. And you're more valuable than any sparrows. Fear not. Kindness is a fruit of a tree that's fertilized by confidence. A confidence that God holds the future. That God is paying attention. That God loves you and will provide for you. And that's what frees you up to look for how you can be part of his provision for others. Even when you're hurting. I mean, uh, remember friends. First, remember that you belong to God. 
I love that answer from the Heidelberg Catechism that we read a little bit ago in our time together this morning. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He bought me. He paid his own blood to buy me. And you know what that means? That answer tells us. Not even a hair will fall from my head apart from the loving attention of my heavenly Father who works all things for my good. When you remember who you belong to, the next step is to look around. Who else around here needs care? Who else needs kindness? What can I do to serve them? Luke would have us to notice Paul's mercy and Paul's kindness. Before point number three, Luke shows us Paul's vindication. Paul's vindication, that's chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. I, unfortunately, for kind-hearted Paul, the hits keep coming. They find that they've landed on an island called Malta. The people of that island are immediately kind to them. It's actually a great little moment here. They can see that these friends or these, these new guys, new to them, uh, sailors are, are wet. They're, they're, they're cold. It's starting to rain. And so they do what they can. They build a fire. Who doesn't need a good warm fire in such a situation? And Paul, he's ever helpful. He's, his tent-making, problem-solving, people-loving instincts kick in. And Paul's out there gathering up brushwood for the fire. Make sure there's enough to go around that we don't all get cold later on when, the, when it gets dark out. And that's when it happens. Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. These native people, they know this snake. And they know what's bound to happen next. They turn to one another and offer up a quick explanation. No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, <laughs> he thought he could dodge the effects of what he's done. Justice has not allowed him to live. See, in their view of the world, anybody who's been through what Paul's been through must have had it coming to them. This kind of stuff just doesn't happen randomly. They know that. This guy had it coming to him. They're assuming something like Homer's Odyssey. You know, in that story, one reason things got so bad for Odysseus is that he asked for it. And pretty early on in that journey... He and his men stop on this island. They see some food that looks pretty tasty. They go in and get some, and they, get, they, they realize that they're, that they're eating the food that belongs to this monstrous cyclops, this huge fellow with one eye who's like half Poseidon's son. Well, the cyclops does what a cyclops is going to do, begins to eat them. They come up with some ingenious plan to, to deceive him and then poke out his eye, and then they make their escape. But as they're getting down to the ship, well, Odysseus decides to, to taunt him. Cyclops is back up there, angry that his meal has gotten away. He's screaming at him, and, and Odysseus is just na 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 boo boo from the ship as he sails away. Cyclops calls out to his father, the god Poseidon, calls down curses upon Odysseus. And from that point forward, Odysseus is riding the waves, let me tell you. He got what he deserved. He got what he asked for. That's how the people on Malta are thinking the world works. Paul thought he could get away, but... No one ever dodges fate. 
Except this time they learn how wrong they are. Paul shakes the snake off into the fire, verse 5. He suffers no harm. They're waiting on him to fall down dead, to swell up and then fall down. Nothing happens. Just the opposite, in fact. Paul spends the next three months on this island going all over the island, healing everybody who's got anything wrong with them. They bring them all to him. He's curing them left and right. He's not taken down. He's passing on healing. They think he's a god, but the truth is, is that God is with him. The truth is that God is not against him. God is with him. Paul's innocence has been one of Luke's favorite themes in the last section of this book. It's the summary of every one of the trial scenes we've spent the last few weeks looking at together. At the end of it, whoever's in charge always says, we find no guilt in this man. We find no evidence to support any charges that he's done anything wrong. Over and over, Luke would have us know, it's not Paul's fault Paul's suffering like this. And in this story is the climax of that vindication. He didn't deserve that snake bite. One more time, Paul is, Paul's innocence is, is put right in front of us. And that raises, well, that raises one more question that hangs over this story. Uh, a, a question that really hangs over so much of Paul's life throughout Acts and a question that leads us into one more thing this story is meant to show us about Paul. The question is this. What in the world is God doing to this man? We're meant to notice Paul's suffering here. Why is he suffering like this? I mean, it's nice that Luke wants us to know that Paul didn't do anything wrong. I and mean, he's making that so clear. His suffering is innocent at every turn. But in that case, what in the world? I mean, this poor man has been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been thrown into prison without credible charges or evidence to back it up. He's been left there in prison for years without a trial. And then when there's finally some movement on the case, when there's finally an opportunity to get out of there and see what happens next, no sooner is he thrown onto this ship than he's thrown all around the Mediterranean like a rag doll. He's shipwrecked and then washed up on shore. And just as he's finally washed up on shore on this island, just when it looked like he'd been through enough, he's bitten by a deadly viper. What in the world is going on here? I mean, for the, for the natives of Malta, it all makes sense. This guy did something and now he's reaping the consequences. The gods are punishing him. That's that. But for the Christian, for the Christian who knows that God rules over all, that he never slumbers or sleeps, that he numbers the hairs on our heads, suffering like this, innocent suffering, it can't be so straightforward. It isn't so simple. It doesn't always make sense. And it's always personal. What is God doing to his friend? In a way, Paul's story here reminds me of the story of Job from the Old Testament. A righteous man who was enjoying all the things that that the Proverbs tell you to expect a righteous person to enjoy, someone who's, who's made wise choices, who's feared the Lord at every turn. Job has it all. And in the setup for that story, before Job loses everything, God himself is taunted by the evil one who says, of course Job worships you. Who wouldn't worship someone who, 
who had given him all these good things. In other words, Job just wants what you've given him. He doesn't care about you. Take it all away and see what happens. See who you are to him then. The story is driven by the question, does Job love God for God or for what he can get from God? I see the same question hanging over this story. I can't help but ask, what is God doing to this man? But, but what's most striking to me at this point in the story is that Paul just certainly isn't asking that question. Paul's not doing any soul searching. Paul's not showing any outrage. Paul's not shaking his fist at the heavens and saying, you, you, you've done me wrong here. Paul's not doing anything like that. No, Paul is merciful to the people who've wronged him. Paul is kind to others when his own needs were so great. And he's just so relentlessly calm and confident in the storm and in the shipwreck. And even when that snake is hanging from his hand, Luke wants us to see this in Paul and to ask, how did this man get this way? I want you to notice as we close both what Paul had learned by this point in his life and how Paul had learned it. Friends, here's what Paul had learned by this point in his life. I think we see it in Philippians chapter 4. I think of, I think of what we see here in Paul and the twists and turns of this story and how he interacted with all of it. A kind of live action version of what Paul himself said in his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 4 he said, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am. I know how to be brought low, <laughs> like say through beatings and prison and shipwreck and snake bites. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what's the secret, Paul? What is it that you've learned? How can you live and even suffer like this? And Paul tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You remember what Paul said about his vision back in verse 23 of Acts 27? This is a man who knows he belongs to God and worships him. That's how he described the angel who spoke to him. A messenger of the God to whom I belong and who I worship. This is a man who knows he belongs to God and worships him for who he is. God is Paul's ultimate reality. And it's this God who told him not to be afraid. He belongs to Christ. He can face anything. That's what Paul learned. But how did he learn it? How did he learn this contentment that can, be, that can be holding steady despite being brought so low? How did he learn it? Well, if contentment is what he learned, you need to know that you could learn it too. Because I didn't obvious on the surface. I mean, maybe you, see, maybe you see him worshiping God here, bobbing up and down in the ocean on his plank and think, yeah, I can't do that. I don't know how to get there from, from here. I mean, I'm, I'm thrown for a loop by a, a text without the proper emojis. How can I be merciful to those people who hurt me? 
I'm terrified that my child will get COVID from the playground. How can I face shipwreck, much less martyrdom? I'm not Paul. I can't get there from here. Maybe you think you can't learn the contentment he learned. If that's what you're thinking, you need to know how he learned it. Here's how. This man learned this contentment through his suffering. This wasn't Paul's first shipwreck. He's been down this metaphorical road before. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul has this amazing section in chapter 11 and 12 where he goes into this whole list of things that he went through while he was serving the Lord, doing just what God had called him to do. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He's already been down this road. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. He's seen worse than this. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's a list. And then Paul says, after this particularly intense trial that he went through, Paul says he pleaded with the Lord three times to take away the pain, take away the suffering. Paul was human. He was like me and you. He didn't want to hurt. Lord, take it away, he said. And then the Lord said to him, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, because Jesus said that to me, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content, he says, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, like shipwrecks, persecutions, like false imprisonment and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see what Paul is saying? It's only through this life of suffering that Paul has learned what he has in Christ. What it is to have God for your God, to belong to him and worship him. It's through suffering that God taught him not to resist or resent his own weakness. So friends, look, look what God may be doing in your suffering I know from where you're standing now, you may think, I can't get there from here, but maybe there is where God is taking you right now through what he's brought you to. When you belong to and worship this God, well, then you start to look at what happens to you. Not for what's happening to you, but for what God is doing in you. To bring out the beauty of Jesus in your life for your sake and so that others can see it through you. Will you pray with me now that the Lord will give us the strength to bear up under his work in us. 
Father, we thank you for the promise of your word that even suffering can be purposeful and redemptive. We know no other hope but the hope you've given us in Christ. And we thank you for your word this morning, which has so clearly showed us what you can do when you grab the hearts of your people and show them their lives through the lens of Christ. We ask you to do that for us now by what you've spoken. In Jesus' name, amen.